0: At the end of that last song, I took my mask off, and I'm I'm not joking at all. I felt liberated. (laughs) Wow. Um, I want to encourage you to open your Bibles this morning to Romans chapter 5. So we continue our study through this great book. I think this is message number 40, and uh, we have a lot of ground um, left to cover, and I'm excited to continue through this study together. I want to give you an assignment this morning. And uh, it's, it's an easy assignment. Some of you may have received a copy of notes, and this is my error. and my error alone, I think you may have received a wrong title. The title of the message this morning is The Counterintuitive Christian Life. One of the great weaknesses of, of working ahead with sermon preparation is sometimes my mind gets a little uh, out of sync. So the title is The Counterintuitive Christian Life. Will you stand with me for the reading of God's Word? We'll be reading in Romans chapter 5, beginning in verse 3. This is God's word. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us, may God bless the reading of His Word. We pray with me, Father. It never ceases to amaze me the the profundity, the beauty, the depth of Your Word, and how it hits us right where we live. Here we are, uh, continuing to walk through this uh, pandemic, through dark days in our community, in our country, and all around the globe, Lord, I ask that you would uh, brighten us, that you would lift our spirits, that you would cause us to turn our attention to the cross work of your son, that our perspective this morning would be renewed, that you would embolden us, that you would help us to remember that we are the possessors of divine hope, uh, that the, the story has been completed in your eyes, God, you have won. And we have won. May you grant us fresh perspective as we are reminded that the Lord Jesus Christ will indeed make all things new. And so would you refresh us and restore us and help us and encourage us today as we continue through the study of the book of Romans. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, by this point in our study, especially in Romans chapter 5 there should be three words that should be very, very familiar to you. They're uh, posted on the screen there. They are the words peace and privilege and priority. These are words that we have focused a lot of time and attention on over the last three weeks. And that is the progression of thought that we have seen beginning in Romans chapter 5, verse 1. In verse 1, we learn that we are granted, if you recall, we are granted Peace with God because we have been justified by faith alone. In verse 2, we learn about our privileged status with God because we have uh, been granted this peace before him. That is to say, we have learned about this privileged status and how we've been granted access to The living God. And I want to continue to put that before you the amazing benefit that you and I, as God's people, actually have access to God. As the book of Hebrews says, we receive grace and mercy and help in time of need. I think you would agree with me. Those are all things that we are in desperate need of during these times. Also in verse 2, Paul spells out his priority and it's also our priority as justified followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. Our priority, Paul's priority, is to rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And now in the verses before us today in verses 3 to 5, we learn that Paul's not done with his argument. There is more to rejoice in. If you look at Verse 3, and I like to look for words that are clues in the biblical text. The first clue we see here are, are the, the three words, not only that. Those words provide us a clue that that point us to yet another thing that Paul is rejoicing in and that he is calling you and I as the people of God to rejoice in. And quite frankly, the object of our rejoicing comes as somewhat of a surprise, and we'll see that. In verse 2, Paul speaks of boasting in the hope of the glory of God. However, in verse 3, his focus of his rejoicing or his boasting is focused in now on sufferings. Now, it's safe to say that when Paul refers to Boasting or rejoicing, those words are are essentially synonymous based on the Greek. It's safe to assume that to rejoice in the hope of the glory of God, that's a concept that should bring a smile to your face. Rejoicing in the hope of the glory of God is something that should come quite naturally to you and I as the people of God. But... The call to rejoice in our sufferings is another matter altogether, and I believe that it merits our special attention. Why? The very idea of rejoicing in our sufferings just does not seem natural. You might even say that the idea of rejoicing in your sufferings doesn't seem right. The idea of rejoicing in our sufferings seems counterintuitive and so my hope today as we walk through these verses together is that you will be able to honestly analyze and evaluate your sufferings and i was like as i look out on the sea of masked faces i hope i don't have to say that much longer as i look out on the sea of masked faces as some of you maybe are even hiding some of your suffering my my hope is And my prayer is that you would be able to to honestly evaluate where you stand right now when it comes to your suffering. Whether your sufferings are physical or spiritual or emotional or economic or any combination of those kinds of suffering. I pray that this passage would come as a relief to you. That this passage would come as a comfort to you. I pray that that this passage would give you, as I prayed, much needed perspective during these dark days. Um, My friend Steve Nim said it the best. He said, the the faces that we saw in the Republic of Belarus, now I see those faces in our culture. And when he said that, it was like a, a light bulb went on for me. Because that's exactly... What we're seeing. We are in a culture right now, not only here in our town, but in our state and in our country and all around the world, where many people are simply without hope and many people are walking around fearful. And so I pray that this passage would give you much needed perspective as you continue your journey, as we continue our journey to the celestial city. As you know, I'm a unashamed fan of Pilgrim's Progress. I just received a a complimentary copy of a a revised version of Pilgrim's Progress with a bunch of really cool pictures in it and just reminded me how much I love that book. Charles Haddon Spurgeon read Pilgrim's Progress and his brief time on earth over a hundred times. It was that important to him. But one of the major themes that we find in Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress is the suffering that the main character, Christian, experiences throughout his life as a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. We will see that theme of suffering emerging in our passage today. Now, a brief word about this idea of counterintuitive. I remember... I might have been an adult, actually. The first time I heard and began to consider that word, I had no idea what it meant. I think it's a word that uh, is, is worthy of a definition. It simply means this. It means contrary to intuition or to common sense expectation. When we say that something is counterintuitive, it just doesn't seem to make sense. And so Paul's passion to rejoice in our sufferings is an example of something that qualifies as counterintuitive. As we explore over the next few minutes the counterintuitive Christian life, I want to draw your attention to three headings, give you a roadmap in advance, and then walk through three main headings together. Number one, I want to look with you at the problem of suffering. And then I want to look with you at the perspective and how to gain perspective in the midst of suffering. And then finally, we'll close our time together by looking at the purpose of suffering. Number one. The first heading is the, the problem of suffering, and I just want to review some nuts and bolts here to help you understand exactly what it is that Paul is referring to in Romans chapter 5, verse 3. If you would look for a moment at that verse, he says, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. That word suffering comes from a Greek word that means an oppressive state. And I don't even need to really read anything more, right? An oppressive state. You know exactly what that is. It's an oppressive state of physical, mental, social, or economic adversity. And you and I have experienced that. If you're a human being in this world, you know what it is to suffer. A few days ago. A friend of mine sent me a text and just out of the blue and he said, hey, I just want to let you know I'm praying for you. And here's how I responded. Thanks, period, pressure, period. I just said, I appreciate the prayer. I I sensed this pressure based on what we're going through. So we all know and I'm not alone in my suffering. We are all suffering to some degree. Some of you have endured physical suffering. There are many, many, many people who are not in church this morning who will be listening to this sermon later today or this week who are enduring physical suffering. And because of that physical suffering, they have a compromised immune system, for instance. They are not able to come at this point to our worship service. They understand what it is to endure physical suffering. Whether it's them or whether it's you or me, you all know what it's like to receive a diagnosis. That you have a certain condition. Some of you know what it's like to receive a diagnosis where the doctor says it's only a matter of time. You have months or years or you might even have decades. Some of you know the, 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 the pain and the suffering of, of dealing with emotional or psychological suffering. You say, what does that look like? You might battle with melancholy. You might battle with anxiety. You might battle with clinical depression. You might put it this way. You just get discouraged easily. My hero, Charles, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, and this surprises most people. The prince of preachers, the prince of preachers battled depression, severe depression for most of his adult life all the way to the end. He would, he would leave the, the dreary confines of London. He would find a place in France where the sun would shine on a fairly regular basis. And he would go there, oftentimes by himself, to, to just soak in the sun, to get some vitamin D, to spend time in prayer, to write, to read, to recreate. And it would lift his spirits, and he would do that often. Spiritual. He made this, this lament, spiritual sorrows are the worst of mental miseries. And I don't know about you, but that encourages me to hear the prince of preachers say that. That I'm not the only one, you're not the only one who struggles with melancholy. I promise I won't make you raise your hand, but if I asked you to be totally transparent, how many of you wake up and just say, I just don't think I can do it today? I would venture to guess that many of us would say some days I just don't think I can put my best foot forward. In the book that surveys the spiritual depression that Spurgeon endured, it's an amazing book, by the way. The title of that book is Spurgeon's Sorrows. I was so struck with this book. I bought five or six copies and just gave them out like candy after I read this book. Um, but the author of this book that surveys the spiritual depression that Spurgeon endured says this quote, Depression, despair, and doubt join together to create spiritual miseries in our lives. End quote. Sometimes emotional suffering comes at the hands of another person as they abuse you or hurt you or manipulate you. Or there's financial or economic suffering. This is a suffering that affects most people. When Doreen and I do premarital counseling, and we just had the privilege of finishing with Kirk and Brenna, and they could tell you, we mentioned this, that it is money that creates many, many problems in marriages. And so uh, marriages, and especially new marriages, money becomes a, a major issue, financial or economic Suffering, whether it's debt or whatever it might be, these are things that we contend with on a fairly regular basis. Here's the point. Suffering is assumed in Scripture. Suffering is assumed in Scripture. Notice in verse 3 that Paul does not say, if you suffer. He doesn't say, if you suffer. He simply implies that we will suffer. And he's not the only one that it assumes we will suffer listen to what peter says in chapter 4 verse 12 1 peter 4:12 beloved do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you in other words peter is essentially saying you will suffer Peter also says in chapter 5, verse 9, resist him, resist the devil, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brothers throughout the world. Let me give you an example, and this is an example that most of you are familiar with. If you're younger, you may not be, but should be. She was a 17-year-old. He stood glaring at her, his weapon before her face. And he asked this high school student, do you believe in God? She paused. It was a life or death question. This teenager bravely and boldly said, yes, I believe in God. Why? Asked her executioner. But he never gave her the chance to respond. The teenage girl lay dead at his feet. This scene could have happened in a, a Roman Colosseum. It could have happened during the dark Middle Ages. It could have happened in any number of countries around the world. It could happen today. People are imprisoned, tortured, killed every day because they refuse to deny the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. This particular story, however, did not happen in ancient times nor in Vietnam or Pakistan or Romania. It happened at Columbine High School in Littleton, Colorado on April 20, 1999. Many of you remember that horrible day. Or you consider the popular Christian writer C.S. Lewis. This is one of my favorite pictures of him. For some reason, I've just always loved this picture. In his book, The Problem of Pain, he said, you would like to know how I behave when I am experiencing pain, not books about it. You need not guess for I am a great coward. That to myself, C.S. Lewis, a great coward. Yes, indeed. A great coward. He continues, when I think of pain, of anxiety that gnaws like fire and loneliness that spreads out like a desert and the heartbreaking routine of monotonous misery Or again of dull aches that blacken our whole landscape or sudden nauseating pains that knock a man's heart out at one blow. Of pains that seem already intolerable and then are suddenly increased. Of infuriating scorpion stinging pains that startle into maniacal maniacal movement of a man who seemed half dead with his previous tortures. Here's the line that always gets my attention. Lewis says, if I knew a way of escape, I would crawl through the sewers to escape pain. That would be my question for you today. If you could escape the confines of pain, would you, would you crawl a mile through the sewers? I'll tell you what, I would. And I'm a germ guy, right? I would crawl through the sewers to escape pain. There is a problem that we must all contend with. The Bible never minimizes it. The Bible never sugarcoats it. Rather, it speaks candidly about it. And so should we. It's the problem of suffering. This is one of the the primary reasons that the health and wealth gospel is one of the biggest lies that has been foisted on our country and on our world and on the church of Jesus Christ. Why? Why? Because the health and wealth gospel assumes that you should not suffer, that God does not want you to suffer. We're going to see in a moment that it is God's will that you and I should suffer. The scripture not only addresses the problem of suffering, it offers perspective in the midst of suffering. The Bible addresses suffering from several angles, and we don't have time this morning to look at all those angles, but here are a few for you to consider. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 26 says that we are called to suffer together as God's people. 2 Corinthians 1, 6 says that we are to patiently endure suffering. That sounds a lot different than the health and wealth gospel, doesn't it? We are called to endure suffering patiently. Philippians 1, 29 says we are called to suffer for Christ's sake 1 Thessalonians chapter 3 verses 1 to 5 says that God has ordained that the people of God suffer. Would you hold your finger in Romans 5 and look with me at two verses in the book of 1 Peter. We've already looked at a few verses in that chapter or that verse rather. But look look at 1 Peter chapter 2 beginning in verse 20. And listen to what Peter says. Speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm in the wrong chapter. First Peter chapter two, verse 20. What credits it? If when you sin, you were beaten for you endure. But if when you do good and suffer for when, when you endure, this is gracious thing in the sight of God for to this, you have been called because Christ also suffered for you leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps he committed no sin neither was deceit found in his mouth and so as the lord jesus christ suffered you and i are called to suffer as well move forward in first peter to first peter chapter 4 verse 19 the apostle says Therefore, let those who suffer, notice he assumes it again, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful Creator while doing good. And so, the perspective that Paul offers here in Romans chapter 5, if you go back to verse 3 of Romans 5, is one that is truly biblical. I, I like to refer to this as a biblical mindset. Now, it's one thing to acknowledge suffering as Paul freely does or as, as Peter freely does. But Paul takes it a step further if you look again at verse 3. He says that we not only acknowledge it, he says we rejoice in our sufferings. This is a, a biblical mindset. As I've already indicated, the word rejoice in verse 2 is a word that may, may also be translated as boast. And the construction of the verb indicates that this rejoicing or this boasting is ongoing activity. It's not a one-time boast. It's not a one-time rejoice. It's something that we do as a matter of habit in our Christian journeys. And so let me kind of put all this together for you. For those of us who are justified, that is to say, if you are a Christian, if you are a follower of Jesus, you have right standing with God. You have Peace with God, verse 1. You have privilege before God, which leads to our priority, that is to rejoice in hope of the glory of God and to rejoice in your sufferings. Now you will find that embracing a biblical mindset is going to require a, a shift in your thinking. Some of you are familiar with the with the with the word paradigm shift. It's a word that I I, I hear a lot of of heat about that word. Oh, paradigm shift. I'm sick of hearing about that word, right? It became a very popular word when Stephen Covey penned his book, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, I believe in the late 80s or early 90s. And he introduces that word, and the word kind of exploded, the the paradigm shift. Let me give you an example of what it looks like to, to engage in a paradigm shift. An author tells about an experience that he once had on a subway in New York City. Imagine that you're on this subway. People are sitting quietly. Some are reading newspapers, some are lost in thought. Other people have their eyes closed or trying to catch a nap. And then suddenly a man and his children enter the subway car and the children are loud and rambunctious and the whole climate on the subway car changes. Have you been there? He's like, oh my word, I can just feel the atmosphere. The man sat down next to me, closed his eyes, apparently oblivious to the situation The children were yelling back and forth at each other, throwing things, even grabbing people's papers. It was very disturbing. And yet the man sitting next to me did nothing with his children. It was difficult not to feel irritated. I could not believe that he could be so insensitive as to let his children run wild like that and do absolutely nothing about it, taking no responsibility at all. And it was easy to see that everyone else on the subway felt irritated as I was irritated. And so finally, with that, I felt was unusual patience and restraint. I turned and I said to the man, Sir, your children are disturbing me and they're disturbing everyone else on this train. I wonder if you couldn't get them under control just a little bit more. The man lifted his gaze as if to come to a consciousness of the situation for the first time. And he said softly, yeah, maybe you're right. I guess I should do something about it. We just came from the hospital where their mother died about an hour ago. I don't know what to think, and I guess they don't know how to handle it either. This is the definition of a paradigm shift. You are agitated. You are irritated. How can this guy be so insensitive? Why doesn't he take care of his kids? And then the man says, my wife died an hour ago, and I just, I don't know how to process it. I don't know how the kids can process it. All of a sudden, you turn from judgmentalism to deep compassion, not to mention profound shame for your attitude. This is the example of a paradigm shift. And so, once our minds have shifted, once the paradigm shift occurs, we will be in a position to understand the biblical mindset that Paul sets forth concerning suffering. Let me commend three principles for you. Number one, this mindset, this biblical mindset, is totally countercultural. After all, n- no one likes pain. I had a a friend of mine, and my wife's going to remember this, it was probably 25 years ago. My friend said that he he prays for bad things to come into his life. And I remember just thinking, that might be the dumbest thing I've ever heard. Both my wife and I, you remember that, Jareen? I pray for bad things to happen. Newsflash, you don't need to pray for bad things to happen. They will happen, Right? If you have been in this world for any amount of time, just just know that suffering will happen. It's countercultural. No one likes pain except for my friend. No one likes to suffer. And for the most part, we are taught as little kids to avoid suffering at all costs. We will do anything to avoid suffering. But Paul's approach is different, you see. He says this, as he assumes sufferings, rejoice in sufferings. And so this mindset, you see, goes against the the conventional wisdom of the day. This mindset is countercultural. Number two, as the sermon title indicates, this mindset is also counterintuitive. Suffering just doesn't feel normal. And it probably shouldn't feel normal because it's not God's original design. The original design of God, as you're well aware of, is that, that Adam and Eve, that, that mankind would dwell in communion with God with unhindered fellowship. And when Adam sinned, all of that changed. Suffering entered the world. Number three, this mindset is intensely biblical. We know that suffering now is not an end in itself. We know that God is using suffering for his purposes. We know that suffering is ultimately for our good and for his glory. I was praying for someone this morning, praying that the sufferings of this person would first and foremost glorify God, but would also transform that person into the image of Christ. This person would be profoundly affected in mighty, mighty ways second corinthians chapter 4 we looked at this last week paul says so we do not lose heart i believe that's what we need to hear we do not lose heart though our outer self is wasting away our inner self is being renewed day by day for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory behind all comparison And we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. This is what I am convinced of as I myself battle with melancholy. And I myself from time to time will will battle with fear and anxiety as we need to lift our eyes to see a vision of the Lord Jesus Christ and all he has accomplished for us on Calvary's cross. We become cross-centered. We become God-centered. Our perspective changes. We are renewed as we focus our attention on these great realities. Now, how does this biblical perspective revolutionize our lives? Let me offer several things. First of all, this biblical perspective shapes our heart. It puts us in a position where as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4 that we do not lose heart. This is what I'm convinced of. Many believers right now during the pandemic are losing heart. Do you see it? Or even more than that, do you sense it? Especially for the women among us who are intuitive. Never doubt a woman's intuition, right? Something I learned a long time ago. You can intuitively sense that that people are losing heart. But this biblical perspective, it shapes our heart. If you have experienced any kind of suffering, you know how very easy it is to to feel like quitting the race, to throw in the towel and giving up. Number two, this biblical perspective sheds our propensity to focus on temporal things and it turns our attention to eternal things. We need to cast our attention on the things that are eternal. If you struggle with that, I'll give you a a quick assignment, something that you can do that will, it's quick, but it'll take the rest of your life. Read the works of Randy Alcorn. Those of you who have read Alcorn know he has a gift for turning the attention of the reader to heavenly things, to eternal things, and to not being so interested in the things that will eventually happen burn in the final analysis number three this biblical perspective shines the great reality of our of our inward renewal that's exactly what paul says in second corinthians 4 verse 17 fourth this biblical perspective shifts our focus godward Again, it casts our attention on what God is doing, not the problem of the pandemic, not the problem of the liberal politicians. And I very rarely address politics in, in messages like this. But my suspicion is, based on what I know about you all, you all are sick of it. I'm sick of it, too. But our, our goal is... Is not social justice. Our, our goal is not political upheaval. Our goal is the kingdom of God. Our goal is to focus on God, the Lord Jesus Christ, and all he has accompli- accomplished on our behalf. Number five, this biblical perspective causes us to, to, to surrender to God's greater purposes for our lives. Look finally. At the purpose of suffering and if you're paying close attention you realize wow we we haven't even left verse 3 yet and we've got a couple more to go let me go quickly there's a threefold purpose here to suffering but before we look at the threefold purpose of suffering i want you to do something with a pen or a pencil or even with just looking with your eyes Look at the word that surfaces three times. In fact, if you have a pen, it would be good to highlight those. It's the word produces. Do you see it there? Produces. Knowing that our sufferings produce endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. That word produces comes from a Greek word that means, and you're going to love this, to cultivate it means to cultivate. It means to prepare someone for usefulness. It means to, to, to bring about or to accomplish. And this Greek word translated produces can be used in one of two ways in the, in the Scripture. It can be used negatively or it can be used positively. Let me give you an example of each. In 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10, there's a negative example Of this word translated produces. Paul says this. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Whereas worldly grief, here's the negative, worldly grief produces, cultivates, brings about death. It's a negative example. Here's a positive example. And you know it very well. James chapter 1. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith... Are you experiencing that right now? I am. The testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And so in Romans chapter 5, verses 3 and 4, this word is used in eminently in positive ways. Let me show you the three ways. Number one, suffering... Suffering produces endurance. Suffering cultivates endurance. Suffering brings about endurance. That word endurance can be translated as steadfastness. We saw that in James 1.3. It means the power to withstand hardship or stress. This is something that our Belarusian brothers and sisters have shown us so well. They have been men and women who have been steadfast in their devotion to the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, here suffering produces endurance. I want you to understand that this endurance, this steadfastness is a command. It's not a suggestion. First Timothy 6.11, Paul says, But as for you, O man of God, flee these things, pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness. Gentleness. Peter addresses it in 2 Peter 1. He says, for this reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness. You see, endurance is, is a character quality that every follower of the Lord Jesus Christ should strive after. Hebrews 12, 1. I love it so much. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin that clings so closely and let us run how? With endurance, the race that is set before us. Moreover, endurance is linked to a faith. It is in, is, it's linked to a faith that is vibrant and vibrant and growing revelation 14 12 here's a call for the endurance of the saints who keep the commandments of god and their faith in jesus christ and so number one suffering produces endurance look at number two number two is that endurance then as paul says produces cultivates brings about character now, I don't want to trifle with the word of God, but I want you to notice something that that might escape your attention. If you read this at first glance, notice that Paul does not say endurance produces a character. Are you with me? He doesn't say endurance produces a character. That would be a bad thing. He says endurance produces character that's a word that means to be dependable or reliable it means a a man or a woman of proven character let me spell it out plainly here's what god is looking for in the old testament god speaks of looking to and fro he's looking to and fro for people who are wholly committed to him god is looking for men and women of character God is looking for boys and girls and teenagers of character. He's looking for people who mean what they say and say what they mean. He's looking for people who are men and women of integrity, who actually carry out what they believe. He opposes the hypocrite. He opposes the proud. But his face is set toward the person who is humble and contrite in spirit. and and trembles at his word, Isaiah 66, 2. Now the character that God is looking for is a very specific character. You might go into the public school system and you might even run into a a principal or an administrator or a teacher or a superintendent who says, we want to develop young men and women of character. That sounds like a good thing. And it probably is a good thing. But in the Christian life, what God is looking for is not mere character. He's not looking for good people. Rather, he's looking for godly people. He's looking for godly people. I want to commend a book to you. This is a book by my favorite Puritan. I say he's my favorite Puritan. Jonathan Edwards is my favorite Puritan. That goes without saying. Thomas Watson writes a book called the godly man's pitcher and when he wrote this book this was um penned in a day 17th century i believe when you could say the godly man's pitcher and every woman that read this book would know he was talking about her as well are you with me will you say this in our culture you're just asking for trouble right and that that's that's for another time in another place but i think there's biblical precedent for talking like this here's what he means The godly man's picture includes a a whole host of qualities. And he's, of course, talking about men and women. This includes a a man of knowledge, a man moved by love, a, a, a man who acts like God, a man who is careful about his worship of God, a man who serves God, not men, a man who prizes Christ above all, a man who weeps. A man who loves the word of God. A man who has the spirit of God residing in him. We'll see that in verse 5. A man who, who is a man of humility. A man of prayer. A man of sincerity. A heavenly man. A patient man. A thankful man. A man who loves the saints. A man who does not indulge himself in any sin. A man who does spiritual things in a spiritual manner. A man who is thoroughly trained in religion. A man who strives to be an instrument in making other people godly. A man who, who walks with God. And these character qualities go on and on and on. And in a crowd like this, it would be easy to, to say that many of you would say, that's overwhelming. These, these are overwhelming qualities. You might even be tempted to throw in the towel. So listen carefully. Knowing that God has an expectation of godliness for every boy and girl and man and woman. You need to understand this. You need to understand that the only way you'll ever be godly is through the power of the gospel. You see, somewhere along the way, we in the church began to embrace this mindset that what I need to do is I need to cinch up my belt I need to get ready and and move into the Christian life and try really hard. And then guess what happens every time? Failure. Failure. You see, we we can't live the Christian life on our own. It's Galatians 2.20 all over again. I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer Dave Steele that lives, but Christ who lives within me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith alone. I live by faith alone in Jesus Christ who died for me. And so the only way we ever have any hope of living a godly life is by trusting the Lord Jesus Christ and living according to the power of the gospel. We've seen that suffering now produces endurance and endurance produces character. Finally, notice that Paul says that character produces or cultivates or brings about hope. And this is interesting to me because Paul has already stated that, in verse 2, that we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. But then in verse 4, we see the reason that we rejoice in sufferings. Not only that we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. What is it? What is hope? It's the feeling of Or the desire that something will be fulfilled. You think about the child on Christmas Eve. That seven-year-old hopes that mom and dad bought him a brand new bicycle. And he wakes up the next morning. He looks under the tree. And what does he see? That package is not big enough for a bicycle. Hopes are dashed. In the Christian life, our hopes will never be dashed. Our hope here is both present and future. We experience it both now and in the future where our hope is fixated on the final eradication of sin. There is a school of theology called sinless perfection where it is taught that sin can be finally purged from your life. And some of you have heard me address this. Have you ever talked to someone who believes that they have been sinlessly perfected, that sin has been eradicated from their life? Just tell them, I don't believe you. And their response will be, well, why why on earth would you say that? And the response is very simple. You just lied to me. There it is. Sinless perfection is nowhere hinted at. In the word of God. And so our hope is fixated on the final eradication of sin. There will come a day. There will come a day when sin is utterly eradicated. For now, we have victory over the power of sin. We have victory over the penalty of sin. We'll see that in Romans chapter 6. But the presence of sin is still with us. One day that presence of sin will be totally destroyed. And so our hope is fixated on our heavenly home. Our, our hope is fixated on the celestial city. Our hope is fixated upon the living God. Now, I want you to kind of focus your attention on these, these three purposes. And I want to make a few observations as we close. First, I want you to see that, that each of the three purposes is an absolutely critical component That God uses to transform us into the image of Christ. That is to say, you eliminate one, you short-circuit the whole process. Number two, each purpose then is cumulative. That is, each, each is a link in the chain that is necessary in order to produce the next effect. And finally, each purpose is aimed at the culmination. Namely... That you and I would be reshaped into the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. It was Paul David Tripp who was close to death's door. And the Lord was merciful to Paul David Tripp. And he's still with us today. He wrote a book entitled Suffering that had a a profound effect. Not only on my life, but on my wife's life. And I believe some of you have read it as well. One of the most powerful books I've ever read on suffering, the author says this, Suffering has the power to turn your timidity into courage and your doubt into certainty. Hardship can turn envy into contentment and complaint into praise. It has the power to make you tender and approachable to replace subtle rebellion with joyful surrender. Suffering has the power to form beautiful things in your heart that reform the way you live your life. It has incredible power to be a tool of transforming grace. That's exactly what happened in the life of Paul, David, Tripp. Now, here's what's interesting. And of course, we don't have time to look at this fully. Paul concludes in verse five that hope does not put us to shame. Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. And here's what's fascinating is this is the first time in Paul's letter to the believers at Rome that he makes reference to the Holy Spirit. Later, we will see the the importance of the Holy Spirit. In our lives. And one of the things I like to address, and you've heard me say this many times, is here at Christ Fellowship, we believe in the Holy Spirit. Amen? We love the Holy Spirit. We depend on the Holy Spirit. You may have heard me share the story of the, the class I taught many, many years ago at, a, at another church. It was a class on the Holy Spirit, and the guy knocked on my door. I'd never seen him before, and he said, I have a question for you. What's going on here? Found out later he carries guns. And I said, what do you mean what's going on here? He said, I used to go to this church, and I go to a charismatic church now, and I just heard that you're teaching on the Holy Spirit. Is that true? And I said, guilty as charged. And we became friends that day. He just couldn't believe that a Baptist church was was actively pursuing the Holy Spirit and trusting the Holy Spirit and believing the Holy Spirit. Well, listen, it can't happen any other way. We love the Holy Spirit. This passage says that God's love that we'll focus on next week, and I can't wait for next week. God's love has been poured into our hearts. It comes through the Holy Spirit who has been given to every follower of Christ. Remember this. This is a fact. This is not a feeling. These are great realities that we possess now. These are not realities we wait for in the future. These are realities we possess now. And so as we come face to face with the counterintuitive Christian life, we are reminded that we are a people of great hope. If you don't remember anything else that you heard today, would you remember that? Would you take that with you? When, when you go into downtown Bellingham, if you were in Linden today at 2 o'clock, hint, hint, you are a people of great hope. Hope. We are not protesters. Theologically, 16th century, sure. But we are not political protesters. We are not flag wavers that condemn people in that sense. What are we? We are a people filled with hope. Indeed, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance. Endurance produces character and character produces hope. And if you can, just for a moment, and I promise we'll close, look back at the first five verses. We've, we've spent a lot of time on the first five verses. We can really sum up the verses by saying this. They remind us of the importance of faith. And you remember, this is not faith in faith. We're not interested in faith in faith, are we? We're not talking about blind faith. We have, we have, no, we have no need for blind faith. We're talking about faith faith. In the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen to what Martin Lloyd-Jones says. Faith, he says, produces hope. And the more clearly and consciously we have that hope, the more we shall see the love of God to us. And the more in turn we shall love God. Simply put, you and I are called to live the counterintuitive Christian life it's a life that is different than what the world expects it's a life that we live as we trust God and rely on the Holy Spirit who has been granted and given freely to the people of God next week we're going to turn our attention to verse 6 and learn that Christ died for us while we were weak while we were ungodly And while we were still sinners and we're going to focus intensely on the love of God, I can't wait. But for now, may I encourage you that you and I are a people who possess a great hope, do we not? And as we enter the marketplace of ideas, let's express that hope. Let's share that hope. Let's shine that hope. Let the the body language that people see in us be a reflection of that hope. May we see, may the people in this world see that you and I at Christ Fellowship are people who possess the hope of the Lord Jesus Christ, even in the midst of suffering. Let's pray. So, Father, thank you for this uh, this game changer, these verses that cause us to shift our perspective. The The paradigm shift is so needed here. Uh, in our church family and in our culture. Lord, I pray that you would remind us of the purpose of suffering and that as we are reminded of that purpose, that we had cast our our hope and future exclusively on the Lord Jesus Christ and what he accomplished on the cross for us. Thank you that we have power over sin, that we have have been granted uh, freedom, that we have been granted liberty in Christ. We thank you for delivering us not only from the power of sin, but also from the penalty of sin. As we say so often, we look forward to the day when the very presence of sin will be eradicated. Think of the verse in 1 John that Jesus Christ came to destroy the works of the devil. Help us to remember these great realities as we uh, go about our business today and the rest of this week. Remind us of the the power of the gospel. And I pray that we would make those things come alive in our our daily lives as we trust in you. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand as we close.